0: Our text is the gospel lesson, Luke's very well-known account of the birth of Jesus. And we'll look at it under three headings. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Caesar and the baby, angels and the baby, and shepherds and the baby. So first, Caesar. Verse 1, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, tells us, that Caesar Augustus issues a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He is the Roman emperor under whom Jesus is born. He rules until about 14 AD. Herod is his local underling in Judea. And there is, at the very beginning of the text then, there's this note of universality. The the entire Roman world, the text says, is subject to the decree. This is not a local thing. So here you you have a worldwide empire with a vast infrastructure, with universal law, with a language, a public official business language, used throughout the realm. It is, in God's wise providence, an extraordinarily well-prepared moment. Right? It's an auspicious time, a good time, for a message of universal salvation to be announced to the human race. It's what the Apostle Paul called the fullness of time. And Augustus, he had declared that as emperor, he had brought peace and he had brought justice to the whole world. And from a, a purely civil point of view, he did bring order. Right? And this famous piece known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, it's one of the reasons that Christianity spread so rapidly in the ancient world in its early years. Because the Pax Romana provided the infrastructure for the gospel to spread. And Augustus, he declared his dead adoptive father, Julius. He declared Julius divine. And thus, Augustus would style himself as a son of God. This whole range of concepts is very important because Luke is aware of this. Augustus was called the benefactor and the Savior of the world. He was called the King and the Lord of all. And in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, he was worshipped as a god. Right, The very title, Augustus, means majestic and sublime, and it was conferred on him by the Roman Senate. So Luke, the physician historian, the author of this gospel, He starts with the world of power politics. You can't start any higher than this. Because this seemingly boring edict is going to set off a chain of events that will topple the empire and transform the world. And so the subtle point that Luke, or perhaps not so subtle in retrospect, that Luke is making here is that the sovereign lord... The Lord of heaven and earth, the true sovereign, rules over the mundane affairs of men. He directs the hearts of kings and even emperors as he pleases. And so in verse 2, we're told that the census takes place when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Since Judea, right, the Jewish homeland, would be in the Syrian province of the Roman Empire. So here we see something very important. We see that Christianity takes place in open history. It makes particular, concrete, historical claims. This is not a religion that floats off into the ether and can't be verified or that descends down inside your navel and exists solely between your ears. These stunning events happened, Luke says. Now remember, Luke is a physician and a respected first century historian. He says these events happened under this Caesar. Not the Caesar before, not the Caesar after. Under this Caesar, at the time of this census, when this Quirinius is governor over this specific province. Remember that according to the Hebrew prophets... Jesus was to be from Nazareth. Nazareth is up in Galilee in the northeast corner of the the land of Palestine. He was to be from Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary currently live. But Micah 5, which we heard read, says he's to be born in Bethlehem. From Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. So this census is an instrument for the fulfillment of these ancient prophetic promises. Soon, believe it or not, Caesar, soon all time will be marked and reckoned by this baby. A.D. B.C. No one's going to care or delineate time by what Rome did in what year. Soon, everything will be marked by the time of this pregnancy. So a mundane piece of bureaucracy now, unbeknownst to anyone, is caught up in a holy cosmic drama. Most of life is mundane stuff. The vast percentage of what we do is the stuff we did yesterday with a slight permutation or variation on it, perhaps. But the mundane stuff becomes mystical. By that, I mean it becomes charged with a kind of otherworldly significance under the good and ever-watchful eye of God. So it is with the mundane, bureaucratic repetition of your life, whether you see it or not. There is extraordinary grace, right? extraordinary things being wrought, destinies being shaped in the ordinary rhythms of life. So we have a census. You've probably gotten one in your mailbox before, right? And you sigh, you've got to fill that thing out. So we have a census. It enables the Romans to do one of the things they did best. And before you're taxed, you had to be counted, and then you had to be registered, and you had to be registered in your ancestral homeland. No taxation without registration. (laughs) So Joseph, he's from the house of David. right? David's town is Bethlehem. So he has to go from Nazareth, up in the northeast, down to Bethlehem, because that's his ancestral homeland. That's the town of David. It's a brutal 90-mile journey for the nine-month pregnant Mary. So here they are, subject to this decree, which couldn't come at a worse time for them. Their lives disrupted late in pregnancy. Poor, hassled, powerless, Joseph and Mary, and their unborn child. They... And their God are the key actors in this drama, not Augustus. Not Augustus. It's interesting, right? It's telling, isn't it, that all of our news channels, all of our media assumes that the really, really important news is happening in Washington. It's a statist, idolatrous assumption, but it's universally embraced. None of the major news channels cover what happens at the local Little League field. This is the decisive stuff, right? This is where real power lies. These are the really important power-playing people. It's a delusion. The whole country is drunk with it. And a story like this, right at the outset, reminds you that there's always a narrative in and under the headline-grabbing narrative of kings. And here it is that this Caesar, this so-called Lord, this self-styled son of God, this king is unawares paving the way for the birth of the true sovereign and the world's true Lord. Augustus, Caesar Augustus will not know Jesus, but his underling Herod will try and kill him. And within a few generations, the later Caesars will hunt down his disciples and kill them. Until finally, in the 4th century, the emperor, and indeed eventually the empire, will become Christian. The ironic seeds of that reversal, they're already sown here in this text. All the Babylonian idolatry of the city of man shall fall before the kingdom of God. And Luke has not even gotten to the story yet. So verse 6 says that while they were in Bethlehem for the census, the time comes for the baby to be born. And then Luke records, rather simply and plainly, that she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in clothes, strips of linen, lays him in a manger, because there's no guest room available for them. So the situation here refers to the houses of the poor where the people would sleep upstairs in the house, and there'd be open feeding areas for their animals downstairs. Essentially a stable downstairs with a house upstairs. So it's most likely there being no room upstairs that in one of these animal feeding troughs, downstairs, Jesus was laid. And so we have this irony, right? This delicious... Sovereign ordering of things where in a place of feeding, a place where food is laid, bread or manna from heaven is laid. He comes down to feed the world, to be bread for the world. And he's laid in the feeding place, manna from heaven in a little makeshift wooden ark. And thus there's this ancient and very probable tradition that field animals. This is why you see this in manger scenes, that cattle were gathered around the manger. This will be the royal birthing place of the world's true sovereign, the world's august sovereign. And this humility here, it's majestic because of who the baby is. Who the baby is. Matt, Matt Niffin sent me a tweet, forwarded me a tweet that he saw yesterday where someone said Christmas is the feast of Nicene dogma. Meaning, it's about what we confess in the Nicene Creed. The real question of Christmas is who is the baby? And, of course, the answer is the one who was rich beyond all splendor and who, for our sakes, became poor. Or to put it more in the Nicene Nicene terms, the baby is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, God of God, light of light, true God of true God. The infinite maker of all things now mysteriously and wondrously appears as a baby. This is really the pulsating center of the mystery and drama of the Christian religion. And the church comes back to it year after year after year to be refreshed and to ever draw light and comfort from it. Luther put it this way, He whom the world could not enwrap yonder lies in Mary's lap. He is become an infant small who by his might upholdeth all. If this is not the eternal God, then this is just a charming story of really no particular interest to us. Perhaps my favorite attempt to grasp just the fringe of this radiance is the lovely English hymn In the Bleak Midwinter. I love the verses that are often left out of modern renditions because they're just a little bit too theologically top-heavy. James Taylor does not have this verse in his edition. Here's the verse. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breastful of milk, a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before the ox and ass and camel which adore. This feeding trough is a temple. It is an ark, a palace. It is the dwelling place of the new king. And you know what it means? Caesar is doomed. That's Caesar and the baby. Let's look at the angels and the baby. Verse 8. There are shepherds living out in the fields nearby. They're keeping watch over their flocks. Now, these are common people. They certainly lived outside the corridors of power. Later, they would come to be despised. It's not clear they were despised in the first century, but they were certainly marginal people. But perhaps they're the perfect witnesses. Because again, we heard this in the Micah text this morning. He had said that there would be a future ruler from Bethlehem who would stand and who would shepherd his flock. The Messiah was to be a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. The kings of Israel were styled as the shepherds of the nation. So it's deeply fitting that when this baby is born, it is local shepherds who are told. To them, an angel of the Lord appears and shines forth with the glory of the Lord, filling them with terror. This glory, right, this divine radiance reminds them and us who the baby is, where he has come from. The glory that is now veiled on the earth is made visible in the heavens. Right, if the feeding trough is like an ark, this is like the glory cloud shining around the ark. And surely this glory would cause fear. That would be the normal response of any mortal. And thus the angel's first words, the first words in verse 10 are these. Do not be afraid. This is the first lesson of Christmas. Fear not. Because humans are fearful creatures. Our lives are fraught with insecurity, with danger, Everybody knows, whether they surface it or not, that they hover over the chasm of death. That they can't even keep themselves alive. That their own being and existence is given to them and they don't control it. They can't sustain it. Right? There's this underneath, subterranean kind of trembling that human beings have in the clarity of the night. And so this one, through his humility, through his life and his death, will usher us into the fearsome glory of God, unafraid. Christmas means there is nothing to fear. Look, you take bracket Christmas out of the story, everything's fearful. Everything's fearful. Now, normal people have psychological ways to buffer themselves off from the fear but the fears are real. The angel says this, because of this baby, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is an annunciation. An announcement. Caesar had announcements made on the anniversaries of his birth. And when the Caesars made these announcements, Augustus was one of them, they would use the word for good news used here. Right? I bring you good news, the angel says. It's the word that's normally translated gospel. Well, the Caesar would announce on the anniversary of his birth, and those announcements would include a celebration of the good news, the gospel of the emperor's birth. Here's an inscription from 9 B.C., so... Very close to the date in our text. 9 B.C., found in ancient Greece. It says this. It says that the emperor's birth... Now I'm quoting the inscription. ...gave the whole world a new shape. It would have fallen into ruin had not a widespread well-being shown forth from him, the one now born. Providence, which has ordered all things, filled this man with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants. The birthday of the God, it continues, was the beginning of the gospel that he brought for the world. From his birth, a new reckoning of time must begin. It's as if Luke read that very inscription and said there'll be a birth and there'll be a savior and there'll be a God. And there'll be a new reckoning of time. But it won't be Caesar's. Luke is clearly aware of this sort of government propaganda. And again, he's ironically reversing the story. Caesar can register and he can tax the whole world. But like all states, in the end, he trades on fear and coercion and force. He cannot bring joy. This baby is going to dispel fear and replace it with joy. Great joy for all people. So we have here in this text the first preaching of the gospel done by this angel. He goes to the source of this joy in verse 11. He says, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. Again, not Augustus, but this child is the savior. He is, the angel continues, the Messiah, or the Lord. So the whole force of the Christian gospel is in these two little words. For unto you is born. Right? The birth here is not, it's not a private affair. It's not a family affair. The child is born to the shepherds, to us, to as many as who will receive him? Or as Isaiah puts it, to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And this one is given three titles in the text. Savior. He saves us from our sins. He delivers us from judgment. He liberates us from fear. Savior. Secondly, he's the promised Messiah. Meaning he's the Christ The anointed one, the king who will forever assume David's throne. And Lord. He's God of God. Or reversing the titles, we might put it this way. He who is the Lord God, he who is the Lord God has become man. And filled with the Holy Spirit, he's the anointed Christ, the Davidic king, that he might be your savior your deliverer, right? That's the Nicene dogma that's at the heart of the feast of Christmas. It's important to heed the preaching of the angel. Notice what happens here. God never just acts. He always acts as here, and then he speaks and tells you what the actions mean. And the significance then of Christmas is not a general kind of heartwarming sentimentality the significance of Christian lies in these titles Lord Christ Messiah so I can condense here the good news down to five words Lord Christ Messiah for you for you Jesus came to save sinners. He's not going to fail in this mission. So the angel gives the shepherds a sign. He tells them in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Now, there may be other babies in Bethlehem this night. There's only going to be one lying in an animal feeding trough. There's also very rich symbolism in this. Right, this bundled up lowliness in strips of cloth, right, this anticipates his broken and bloody, bloody body right, being also wrapped in burial cloths and placed in a tomb. From the virgin womb to the virgin tomb. And suddenly, the text says, suddenly you get a whole choir. These Heavenly hosts appear and they sing glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The angels have a vocation, right? Their existence is perpetual praise before the face of God in the highest heavens. Now they perform. Now they sing in a new venue. Because grace, which was promised, redemption, which was promised, has now been manifest in the baby. And this means peace. Peace on earth. This is, this peace is not a general sort of peace, right? It's it's the peace of the gospel. There are all sorts of fraudulent pieces out there. Right? But we need peace that goes all the way down into our darkness, and all the way out into the cosmos, which is infected with death. Right? We need peace that reconciles us with God in a profound way to ourselves and to one another and to the created order. Peace that comes through the blood of the cross that this child has stooped down to carry. Caesar had provided a peace, right? The Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But the Sto- even the Stoic philosopher. Epictetus, he's a contemporary of Luke's. He says this, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns even more than outward peace. And that brings me to the third point, the shepherds and the baby. So after the gospel's been preached to them, this heavenly choir departs, right? The shepherds go in haste and they, they found things just the way the angel said, the text says. So please don't miss this in the story. The shepherds believed the gospel. I mean, amazement is wonderful, but it's not why the baby appears. Right? The gospel is God calling you to faith to inform trust in his generosity. Imitate the shepherds. Run to the incarnate one, to the baby in faith. And the text tells us that they spread the word concerning what they had been told. They told not just Mary and Joseph, they told others. They shared the gospel. These shepherds are the first human creatures to do so. As the angel preached to them, so they preached to others. Believe this gospel afresh, lest your Christmas be in vain. Right? They share the good news with others because of this birth. No other birth. Not Caesar's birth. This birth is God's gift to the whole world. And Mary, ever the contemplative one, we're told, treasured up all these things in her heart. It fits beautifully with the portrait that we've seen from her. These accounts in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, and almost all scholars agree on this, they are certainly shaped by Mary's hundreds, by her first hand recollections. Meaning, Luke says, he tells us, He interviewed all the relevant parties he could interview before he wrote his gospel. There is little to no doubt that Luke interviewed Mary and that her recollections, her ponderings, her meditations shape the story you get in Luke's gospel. So embrace the gospel afresh. Embrace it. The gospel is not something you ever get past in the Christian life. You need it every hour. Preach it to yourself daily. Embrace the gospel afresh. And then tell it to others. And then, like Mary, meditate on it with wonder. That's a successful Advent season right there. There's one more thing, finally, that the church calls us to in imitation of the shepherds. The shepherds, in verse 20, returned, glorifying and praising God. So what did the shepherds do? They believed. They preached. They're called like Mary to ponder. And then they praised God. The shepherds now have joined the celestial choir. For in the church, the angels' song has never and must never go silent. The song has not gone silent for 2,000 years. It just gathers more tongues and tribes and singers. So add your voices to theirs, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace toward those on whom his favor rests. Amen.